This podcast was made possible by the ALF Silicon Valley Network. With a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members and our 2022 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Lisa and Matt Sonsini, Deloitte, HP, and Adobe Inc. Thank you. Welcome to the dialogue. Hi, folks. This is Richard, Marketing and Communications Director here at ALF Silicon Valley. In this episode, we're bringing you another Senior Fellow Spotlight where we offer a glimpse into the personal and professional journeys of some of the most remarkable leaders in the ALF network. Listen as we hear from veteran technology business leader and Class 13 senior fellow, Linda C. Lawrence. Linda offers us insight into how she navigated being the only woman at the table in the early days of her career, and how she worked to establish her place in the male-dominated international executive space. She also shares how she learned the value of service at an early age and how those values have shaped her personal and professional trajectory. Enjoy. My name is Linda Lawrence. I am a member of Class 13. I am also fortunate to be an honorary member of Class 15, having accompanied them to the wilderness uh, that year. I am currently an advisor to uh, founders and CEOs of companies, both for profit and for impact. I have worked really all of my life. My first regular job was when I was 12 years old to earn money. And Uh, I also, beginning about that time, was expected to do work and projects that contributed to my community. That was just part of my family life. Uh, In high school, I worked in restaurants mostly in food service that continued through college and beyond to pay for my education and my loans. Um, I also simultaneously worked in after-school programs in the elementary schools and did a number of service projects for local organizations in upstate New York, where I grew up. Um, In high school, the organization for people interested in service was the Key Club. And at that time, girls were not allowed to join the Key Club. So I started the Girls Organization for Service at Shaker High School in Latham, New York. Uh, The organization has rebranded itself now as Girls Take Charge, And they have expanded their influence with leadership conferences, not only for women in the high school, but also um, adding the junior high school. So from the beginning, I've had this duality in my life, in my work, evenly split between the work I did for money and companies creating wealth and the work I did to contribute to my community for impact. And so I've always had two roles for really as long as I can remember, and that continues today. My year in ALF, was an important pivot point as far as the balance of my work. Prior to ALF, my primary work was in the for-profit sector, 
with additional projects for impact. So what that looked like was a series of startups in Boston until Apple recruited me to California uh, as head of national product uh, programs, marketing programs, and worldwide product launches. I was recruited to Synoptics, which became Bay Networks. Uh, I was recruited to Netscape, uh, where I was head of international and built along with an extraordinarily talented team. Uh, as far as I know, the only profitable international portal at that time. Throughout most of my career, uh, I was the only woman in the room uh, in high school. I was one of the rare women that loved math and sciences. I excelled in those areas. Um, you know, not a lot of women pursued those interests at that time. Um, in my work, was mostly outside the U.S., where I was often also the only American in the room. Uh, it was not uncommon to be asked inappropriate questions. It was common for executives to address their conversations to the more junior male colleagues in the group. Um, but I was fortunate to have some early accidental but useful lessons um, that helped me find the opportunity in the midst of the limitations, if you will, um, the, some of the boundaries or the, the limitations of the norms where women were concerned at the time. Uh, at the time, there were very few women in the room. Uh, and most of the time, we were offered jobs that the men, frankly, didn't want, jobs that were thought to be necessary but impossible. I took those jobs. If that was the opportunity that was available, I took those jobs if I could see a path forward, and I did them well. And in some ways, so little was expected of me that I had the freedom to experiment and to fail safely that a lot of my male colleagues did not have. And so I gained extraordinary experience well beyond my years. I earned the respect of many of my colleagues. The second lesson is that with so few opportunities, women often competed against themselves or we, we were dispatched to fight the battles that were either too risky or too messy for our male bosses to fight themselves. Um, this left very painful marks on, you know, not only on us, and, and these are all talented, devoted women, you know, that, that I'm talking about. But it also left marks on the young women coming up behind us. It, it, made, it made them afraid to dare. It made them afraid to take chances. And that experience led to making a lot more space in my life to support women, both the women who were ahead of me, uh, supporting them up, and also to the women coming behind me. third big lesson uh, of being a woman at the table early on, uh, and I think it's still an important lesson uh, because it's a common misconception that women ought to emulate men. Holding aside 
the advantages of the differences in our working styles. And, uh, and there are, of course, opportunities there, too. Uh, I was fortunate to learn early on that I didn't have to emulate the men. And it came in the form of kind of very typical customary late night drinking and bonding events that are a favorite around the world. And at just over 100 pounds, I was not going to do very well in that arena. And I knew or learned that local museums were often open one night every week and were both more of interest and, for me, an important way to learn more about the people and culture of any particular country or, or community. So over time, the local teams learned that I had my first breakfast at 5 a.m. when jet lag woke me up and when the kitchen opened, and I read all of my briefs for the day. When I arrived for the meeting, I was well prepared. I was ready. They also knew I traveled on Sunday nights in order to arrive in their countries for the meetings on Monday morning and, and so that I could leave on Friday morning's local time because that got me home Friday afternoon, California time, when my kids arrived home from school. And so over time, the norms in the whole group shifted. I, I never did a talk about it. I never asked for it. I simply began to model the habits and the choices that were necessary for me to be successful. One of the greatest leadership challenges in my career came in the for-profit sector when I was recruited to Netscape to be head of the international online services business, as well as head of the international marketing organization. I joined in June of 1997, and by January of 1998, Netscape had announced their decision to make the browser free and to launch an ambitious open source project, uh, which we all now know as the Mozilla Foundation. I, uh, Netscape had already experienced in their enterprise software and services business, the impact of the pressure from Microsoft, well-documented in the Department of Justice case and the case in the European Union. Uh, revenue suffered, uh, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, and yet we still had numbers to make. It was a very challenging time in the business. Because we were under this duress, it was absolutely necessary that our international business be profitable. And our business was profitable every single quarter. This was not a popular notion. Uh, I was brought in from the outside. There were a lot of extraordinarily talented. In fact, I would highlight this international Netscape team as amongst the most talented and with an extraordinary level of commitment to a mission that 
was unlike those of our colleagues in other international divisions. I was asked to simultaneously add the title of vice president and general manager of the enterprise software and services to Asia, in Asia Pacific to my existing title of vice president and general manager of Netscape's international online services. So from that point through the whole year of the transition, I delivered two forecasts to Jim Barksdale and the executive team. And I delivered consistently two sets of numbers uh, during a very challenging time in the company. And, you know, maintaining the commitment of staff, we, we had to make cuts. We had to cut programs that really mattered to us. And so I, it was the most challenging time. I can tell you, I, I don't think I slept more than three or four hours a night. I worked every single day. Uh, through that period of time. And uh, we also achieved some of the most extraordinary results of, of any team. And I have maintained relationships with many of the members of that team, um, including through today. I went back to this quote by John Gardner, and I, I haven't been able to find the source, but I have it written on a post-it. <laughs> it says, pity the leader caught between unloving critics and uncritical lovers. I don't know about your life, but I'm pretty sure every senior fellow has met lots and lots and lots of unloving critics and uncritical lovers and now they all have megaphones uh, on social media. And, and what Gardner suggested we need, uh, he also suggested is all too rare, which is loving critics, people that care enough about us to encourage us when we're right and, and care enough about us to, to tell us, to correct us when we're wrong. And I have been really fortunate all of my life to have loving critics in my life. And as uncomfortable as that can be, um, at times, it has been extraordinarily valuable and certainly shaped who I am. And over time, I have drifted uh, productively, um, although somewhat accidentally, uh, I've drifted toward channeling my curiosity, my intellect, and my experience um, toward a desire to be a loving critic. And I aim to do that for the benefit of society, uh, in service to the common good, which is rooted in my experience with ALF. And I, I hope to do it in a way that's sustainable, to do it in a way that benefits the individuals doing the work. All too often, this type of work is, is purely volunteer or, in fact, uh, leads to advocates and leaders that cause harm to themselves in pursuit of these greater goals. So for that, I'm rereading the work of Robert Greenleaf. Uh, he was recognized 
early on that both institutions and individuals can be servant leaders, leaders that serve the mission, um, leaders that serve the people that deliver that mission. And that reading was part of the packet for the first year program in ALF, which I did in 2000 to 2001. And his thesis is that caring for persons, the more able and the less able serving each other, is the rock upon which a good society is built. Now, he went on to say that caring was largely person to person for a long time, and it shifted to institutions that are often large and powerful and, and not necessarily good at it. But he comes back and he connects that back to building better societies, again, echoing John Gardner's call to action. And he says that if a better society is to be built, one that is more just, one that provides greater creative opportunity for its people, then the more open course is to raise both the capacity to service and the very performance as a servant of existing major institutions by new regenerative forces operating within them. So for me, this is the call to action. And it's really applying that to this new generation of citizens that are advocates that want a more just world and are putting their actions behind their intentions. Retirement means I am making more time for the many areas of interest. I, I, I'm curious about so many things, but the many areas of interest that were harder to sustain during the most active chapters of my career. So I have made time for a lot more photography, uh, and I've also started to paint again. So I've made a lot more time for both of those. Uh, but again, as you know, I really like the work. And so, and I believe the common good is vital to sustain democracy and all the freedoms and opportunities it offers, including, you know, the creativity, the freedom to create and experiment and fail that we have here in Silicon Valley that supports much of the growth, not only in our economy, but around the world. So for me, that common good means healthy and educated citizens, voting rights, protecting voting rights and a free and independent press. And I think there's a lot of work to do to reconnect the rights that everybody's desires and wants to keep with the responsibility. We've lost the connection between those two. We want the rights, but we don't necessarily want the accounts accountability and the responsibility for our side of the equation. And I think there is an especially powerful role for the arts to make a big contribution to kind of bringing us together around the common good again and reconnecting us not only with our rights, but with the responsibilities that come with that.
I have two pieces of advice for all of us in leadership. The first is to connect in more meaningful ways. And I know more people as a result of COVID are now raising this to a much higher level of priority in their life than they did before. And that was driven home to me last week when I was listening to the predictions for 2022 talk that Scott Galloway, who's a professor at Stern, uh, gives every year. And he closed his talk. And there was, I think, something like 45,000 global leaders from around the world. And he closed it with a call for connection, with a call for forgiveness, because so many, I mean, really, nearly everyone has been wounded in one way or another. You know, we've discovered that uh, our friendships strained, our family units strained by the divisiveness of politics and communications, by the gap now between people wanting their rights but not wanting to fulfill their responsibilities, uh, and just by the isolation that comes with quarantines and Zoom calls and lack of offices and not necessarily feeling safe, in fact, not necessarily being safe to be out in the kinds of settings where you have that kind of person-to-person contact that, um, you know, Robert Greenfield talked about way back at the beginning, shifting from that person to person to institutions, which were already not doing a great job. So, you know, institutions are vital. Contact, remote contact is here to stay. So what are the things we can do to create that person to person contact? And one of the things I've been telling people is pick up the phone. Don't send an email. Don't send me 10 text messages. You know, I've been picking up the phone. I'm picking up the phone to reconnect with family that's, you know, gone silent with friends. I've lost five very important friends over the last 18 months. Uh, so I've had this sharper focus on reaching out to, to people that are dear to me in my life uh, bef- before I can't. Uh, so the first thing is like connect in person to person ways, uh, not just an email, but reach out, find out what somebody's doing, find out what they're trying to do. Uh, ask, 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 know what you, you know, know what the ask is. So the first thing is to connect in more meaningful ways. The second one is, is find your loving critics. Again, back to that John Gardner work, you know, the pace of change is accelerating. It's not going away. And the side effects of the disruption brought about by technology, new business models, uh, blockchain, NFTs, cryptocurrency, all these things, the disruption's getting a lot more visible and a lot more uncomfortable. And yes, Bad actors tend to come into these new technologies to exploit opportunities, but they were all designed for good and there is good in them. But the side effects in the transition are very disruptive, very uncomfortable, and they're not going away. So there are going to be many difficult conversations ahead. And there is a lot at stake right now for our country for democracy in the world and for the well-being of our our young people, frankly. So pick up the phone, 
call your loving critics, find your loving critics and begin those difficult conversations. And I see the American Leadership Forum as playing a critical role. And I think that our role in Silicon Valley is greater. We have a greater responsibility to lead because we've played a greater leadership role in this disruption. And we've frankly garnered more benefits from it than anyone else in the world. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.